Yeah, greetings again in the Master's name. It's good to be here. This morning, I uh, thought I'd bring a message on civic duties, uh, partly uh, because of the present affairs in our nation. And so, um, thinking about civic duties, there's three words that kind of rhyme that are sometimes given as our duties towards government. Can you tell me what they are? Pray. Pray. Obey. Obey. Pay. <laughs> pray, pay, and obey. Okay. I want to look at those three. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 2. It's kind of easy to remember. Pray, pay, obey. And is that the sum of our duty? Well, I suppose we could discuss that. But uh, 1 Timothy 2. First two verses. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So, four categories of prayer are mentioned in verse 1, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks for all men. And then it specifies kings and all that are in authority. It says one of the purposes is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. So it's not wrong to desire that. Although often in history it's not been the case. In all godliness, and honesty. Other translations, uh, the word honesty, other translations use the words like gravity, serious behavior, reverence, respectful in every way. The Greek word was sort of like the idea of venerable. So it, honor is a good um, honesty, honor, um, Respectful in every way. I thought that was an interesting way of saying it. So uh, that's pretty straightforward, pretty plain. I thought there would be more references about praying for authorities. And uh, I didn't um, find any particular ones in the New Testament. Maybe I didn't look far enough. Now in the Old Testament, when uh, Darius uh, sent Ezra back to rebuild the temple and he said uh, he said you know supply me in the letter official letter he sent to the governor there and so on he said now supply them with everything they need uh, particularly for their sacrifices and this is the way it, it says in Ezra 6.10 that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons and I think that still applies. Um, the the um, the king, Darius, he wanted him to pray uh, for the life of the king and his sons. And I think I mentioned this before. In fact, 
I sent an email to Pete Peters within the last week or two and asked him if he could get somebody to write this up because we're thinking about writing a civics course at Christian Light. We'd really like to have it, but too many other things. We've never got it done yet, but civics from a two-kingdom perspective. But uh, I think I heard him mention, or Ben Bergen, of a situation in Mexico within the last number of years where the uh, Mennonites had told the governor, whoever was this particular official was, that they weren't going to vote, but they would pray for him. And uh, something happened, and I, that's what I don't know the details, but whether he was an accident or whether it was an attempt on his life or what. Anyway, he came out of it okay. And he came back to the Mennonite community, if I have the story right, he came back to the Mennonite community and thanked them for praying for him. He felt like that had something to do with his escape from whatever it was. And uh, so I'd like to have that story written up. But that's, I think that goes along with what uh, Darius wanted. Then uh, Jeremiah told the captives that were in Babylon, uh, in Jeremiah 29, 7, it says, And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. So they could have been uh, bitter. They could have been quite uh, antagonistic, uh, being carried away captives. But Jeremiah said, You pray for where you are, and so that in their peace, you can have peace. That's interesting, too. Okay, now for, let's pray. Okay, now for pay, let's turn to Luke 20. Luke 20, okay. Now, you'll remember this account. But they came to Jesus, and they thought they had a no-win question for him. Uh, they said, well, maybe I should just read it here. Verse 21, Luke 20, 21. It, it says in verse 20 that they, you know, they, they really had devious means. They wanted to take hold of his words that they could deliver him to the authority of the governor. So in verse 21, they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar, or no? But he perceived their craftiness, and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. They thought they had him. If he had said, Yes, pay Caesar, then the Jews were, I mean, they were violently opposed to those taxes. And if he had said, no, then they could have turned him in for sedition. No win situation. But he said, give Caesar what's his. Well, what's Caesar's? The taxes. What's God's? Our whole life. 
And they couldn't argue with that. I, 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 I just couldn't catch him. But anyway, we have a pretty clear directive there that you pay Caesar what's his. Uh, it's real plain in Romans 13. Let's turn to Romans 13. <clears throat> it talks about, in Romans here, Romans 13, the uh, responsibility of the government, what God has set them up for. So they have responsibility, they have a duty, and it costs money to carry that out. And so it says in verse 6, <clears throat> for, for for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. It's kind of interesting here. Um, well, before I, I get the breakdown there, let me read a little bit. This is what Adam Clark said. <clears throat> because civil government is an order of God and the ministers of state must be at considerable expense in providing for the safety and defense of the community, it is necessary that those in whose behalf these expenses are incurred should defray that expense. And hence, nothing can be more reasonable than an impartial, impartial and moderate taxation by which the expenses of the state may be defrayed and the various officers, whether civil or military, who are employed for the service of the public be adequately re remunerated. All this is just and right. Now, <laughs> what follows is sort of interesting. But there is no insinuation in the apostles' words in behalf of an extravagant and oppressive taxation. For the support of unprincipled and unnecessary wars, or the pensioning of corrupt or useless men. The taxes are to be paid for the support of those who are God's ministers, the necessary civil officers from the king downwards who are attending continually on this very thing. And let the reader observe that by God's ministers are not men here, the ministers of religion, but the civil officers in all departments of the state. Well, I found that very interesting because uh, uh, he, he talks about extravagant and oppressive taxation. Well, if you know anything about American history, you know that was part of the cause of the uh, American Rebellion or Revolution, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, who's going to decide what's extravagant and oppressive? And it says the support of unprincipled and unnecessary wars, you know, back in, uh, well, we probably don't, most of you are too young, but back in the time of the Vietnam War, that was sort of a thing among the modern Mennonites not to pay the portion of their taxes that went for war. Uh, and in thinking through that, of course I was growing up in that time and coming of age, and thinking through that, you know, the taxes that the Jews had to pay, uh, Rome, was, Rome was quite a military power. I imagine most of their taxes, a lot of their taxes, went for the military. And uh, Jesus didn't say anything about withholding that, withholding that portion, or Romans doesn't either. So uh, Barnes' uh, commentary, I think I would agree with a little closer. He said, as they attend to this and devote their time and talents to it, it is proper that they should receive a suitable support. It becomes then a duty for the people to contribute cheerfully to the necessary expenses of the government. If those taxes should be unjust and oppressive, 
yet like all other evils they are to be submitted to until a remedy can be found in a proper way. I don't know what he would consider the proper way of remedy, but anyway, that was a little closer, I think. Now, verse 7 talks about render to all their dues. And then it gives four categories of dues. Tribute, custom, fear, and honor. And then it says, owe no man anything. So, tribute, I think, is taxes. Uh, a tax on person. Actually, in looking up the word tax on persons or property, uh, Strong says, whereas 5056, and that's custom, is usually a general toll on goods or travel. So, tribute would be taxes. Um, custom would be tolls. Uh, custom house, does that ring a bell? Did you ever hear of custom house? Um, I looked it up. Custom House or Customs House was traditionally a building housing the offices for a jurisdictional government whose officials oversaw the functions associated with importing and exporting goods. If you bring certain goods into the country, if you've been away, you bring certain goods in, you have to pay custom tax on them. The, um, the uh, books that I sent to uh, or mailed for Christopher Nagy to Tanzania, he ended up having to pay about $800 to get them out of customs. As custom tax, of course, he wanted me to help with that too. Uh, but um, so that's that's custom, and then you have um, you have fear or reverence, and you have honor. The um, Weymouth New Testament that's an older translation, not so much uh, referred to nowadays. It translated Romans thirteen seven this way. Pay promptly to all men what is due to them. Taxes to those to whom taxes are due. Toll to those to whom toll is due. Respect to those to whom respect is due. Honor to those to whom honor is due. Now, who's due respect? Who's due honor? Well, let's see what we read there in um, Timothy. said all men. All men. Okay, so that's pray and pay and what's the other one? Obey. Obey. Okay. Uh, now here we're, we're here in Romans and so we know this very well. Romans 13, 1 Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God the powers that be ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And then uh, let's turn also to Titus 3. Titus 3, that very plain there also. It says subject and obey. It has both words here. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man. Maybe I'll just stop right there. I hope nobody here listens to those political commentators. Um, I don't. I can't think of very many of them right now. 
I know Rush Limbaugh is a big one. But um, conservative Mennonites listen to those people. And one brother, and I tend to agree with him. That uh, older Mennonite men or people or whatever listening to political commentators is just as wrong as young people listening to their rock music. Well, okay, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. That's plain English. But uh, we're kind of in the thick of that right now, aren't we? Obey. Obey. Uh, years ago, there was an article on Lifelines on uh, the Christian's responsibility to government. And uh, it focused a good bit on obey. And it quoted from a 1960 Gospel Herald article by Harold Bender. said, but under what conditions may the Christian disobey the state? Some conditions are clearly not tolerable grounds for disobedience. Such are the convenience or profit of the individual or the group. That it may cause trouble or financial loss cannot be a ground for disobedience. Opinion that a law or requirement of the state is unwise or undesirable cannot be a ground of disobedience. There may be wide divergence as to whether legislation is good or bad, or whether governmental policies are helpful or harmful to the general welfare. The Christian's overriding obligation is to obey, even while he may seek to persuade or convince the authorities to change the law. What then are the conditions requiring disobedience? Certainly the Christian must disobey when he is required to perform an act which is clearly forbidden in scripture or is a clear implication from such a prohibition such as military training and when he is forbidden to do what the scripture or the clear implications of it require. In other words, the subject matter of an act required by the state must clearly be an evil in itself, which then becomes a sin when performed. We must consider it a sin to disobey the government unless such a sinful act is required. The Christian is not at liberty to disobey the government for his own ulterior purposes, no matter how good these purposes may be in themselves. So that's a pretty high bar for disobeying. Thinking about our civic duties, uh, I, had, I had to think about this uh, old book. This uh, book called Christian Ideals was first done by Virginia Conference and then reprinted by Southeastern. I think the older version was in a brown book. Probably a lot of you don't have it, but if you happen to run across it, it's not a bad little booklet to have. Christian Ideals, and it gives ideals in a lot of, just a couple pages on various subjects. But anyway, Civic Ideals, it's on page 89, and it, it lists our civic ideals. It describes each one a little bit. But it gives obedience to the civil law, refraining from political activities, 
neighborliness in the community. In other words, people, you know, sometimes accuse us of being a, what's that uh, saying, something about the, the, um, all that's needed for, I don't have, I can't get it quite right, all that's needed for bad men to uh, accomplish is for good men to do nothing or something like that. I don't have it quite right. So, you know, you all are people who don't, you don't do which could. Well, we do things. Obedience to civil law, refraining from legal activities, neighborliness in the community, cooperation in general lines of life, non-resistant attitude. Just a paragraph on each one. Okay, that's pray, pay, and obey. And I thought it spent a little time also talking about just reminding us um, especially with the election being less than a month away, that God rules. God rules. Let's, uh, let's turn to Daniel. Book of Daniel. Chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Now this is uh, Daniel praising the Lord uh, upon receiving the, uh, the knowledge of the king's dream. Daniel 2, let's read verses 19 to 21. Then was a secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Does he still do that? Well, God is in control of history. And we cannot see how everything is playing out. And even when we think we might know why, we can't be sure. Uh, one thing that impressed me in the past was... Um, um, let's see what was Nasser Nasser I think it was in Egypt he was trying to pull the Middle Eastern countries together to form a sort of a, an alliance a powerful alliance and he died before he got it accomplished um, not because of old age I forget what, what happened but uh, I thought well you know, that's interesting. But whether or not, well, whatever, as things, as history moves, God is in control. Well, let's, let's go to chapter 4. It's quite uh, pronounced here. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful monarch of the time, most powerful ruler, nation, and he uh, was pretty proud of it. 
So starting at verse 13. He had a dream. So he asked Daniel what it meant. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get, get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, that was Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. Now Daniel was a man who was carried away captive as a young man. Babylonians came in three times. He was carried away in 1606, first time they came. And uh, usually when they took these young men, took them away to train them for service, they um, made eunuchs out of them. Uh, he, he could have been rather anti and thought, finally, Nebuchadnezzar's getting what's coming to him. But what does it say? It says he was troubled. And he told the king, may the interpretation be to your enemies and those that hate you. He hesitated to even, it was so unpleasant, disconcerting, he hesitated to even tell Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar said, Out with it. And so he says, The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation, it is thou, O king, Thou art growing and become strong, for thy greatness is growing and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, 
which is come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Well, it's stated several times that the Most High rules, but he told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Daniel, this amazing character, how he maintained his integrity and still served the king. But he said, um, you know, my advice is for you to mend your ways. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't. He was too proud. And so it came. Well, the last part of the chapter then. At the end of the days, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. That just strikes me right now with all the um, political wrangling that's going on. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And at the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned to me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose words are truth, and his way is judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. A little bit of history, a little bit of history. We uh, we think we, we we think, and we are uh, living in somewhat unsettling times. Now Solomon said, "There's nothing new under the sun," and so uh, a little bit of history for a couple reasons. I call attention to this one. The 1800 election still stands as one of the nastiest in history. Jefferson's supporters accused Adams of having a hideous hemophroditical character, while Adams' camp called Jefferson a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow. Jefferson hired a sleazy journalist, James Callender, to smear Adams in the press, including the false story that he wanted to start a war with France. On the day of Jefferson's inauguration, Adams took the early stagecoach out of Washington and was not present during the ceremony. They would not exchange another word for 12 years. 
And another uh, site said, negative campaigning in America began with two lifelong friends, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Back in 1776, the dynamic duo combined powers to help claim America's independence, and they had nothing but love and respect for one another. But by 1800, party politics had so distanced the pair that for the first time in U.S. history, a president found himself running against his vice president. Things got ugly fast. James Jefferson's camp accused President Adams of having a hideous hemophroditical character which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. In return, Adams' men called Vice President Jefferson a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginia mulatto father. As the slurs piled on, Adams was labeled a fool, a hypocrite, a criminal, and a tyrant, while Jefferson was branded a weakling, an atheist, a libertine, and a coward. Historian Joyce Appleby said the election was one of the, one of the most acrimonious in the annals of American history. And actually, when it was all said and done, um, there was a tie. You know, you're hearing some of the rumblings about the election nowadays, but there was a tie and it took 36 ballots in the House of Representatives before it was settled. But, where does that, how does that relate at all to us? Well, several years ago, this document came to light, a broadside. A broadside is just a big sheet of paper like it was pasted, put out for public use like nailed to telephone poles or something, except they didn't have telephone poles back then. But anyway, po posted in different places. And um, I'll just read here. This was in... Um, Fellowship Concerned Mennonites uh, some years back. The election of 1800 was the first time that two political parties vied for the presidency of the United States as Democrat Thomas Jefferson challenged the incumbent Federalist John Adams. Much like the current political environment, the campaign produced unpleasant rhetoric and religion was a contentious issue. Given Jefferson's unorthodox religious views, the federal leadership of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, published a broadside pleading especially with the local Mennonites, Dunkards, and Quakers to vote for Adams. Jefferson, according to the broadside, was a man who has declared that it is all the same to him whether there are 20 gods, one god, or no god. The very idea of such an expression is enough to chill the blood of any man who is not an infidel or who possesses one remaining spark of Christianity. Let us take warning, be roused, exert ourselves, and we shall triumph over the dangerous enemy. The broadside, dated April 7, 1800, is titled to the free men of Lancaster County and addressed to friends and fellow citizens, but it specifically calls for the Peace Church's support, claiming they would be particularly vulnerable should Jefferson and the Democrats triumph. The menaced, the Tunkers, the Quakers, and others conscientiously scrupulous of bearing arms will perhaps, according to the whoosh of Judge Whitehall, Democratic candidate, be deprived of the rights of citizenship even to the third or fourth generation, the broadside declared. If we succeed, our liberty and property will be secured to us. If we lose the present election, we shall probably be governed by Jefferson and a party worse than himself. Well, Jefferson won, and we're still here. So... Let's turn to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. 
verses 6 and 7. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. I guess it means it comes from the north. <laughs> no. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. It's that simple. He put it down one, setteth up another. And let's close with 1 Peter 2. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2. Read several verses there. Starting with verse 13. 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing may be put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And I'll just add this word. I know that the mask is a contentious thing among us. Um, one concern I have is our um, public practice of it, particularly I'm thinking about during the week. And maybe I mentioned this year before, but somebody had observed some time back that in a Hobby Lobby store, doesn't it didn't say what particular group the individuals belong to, but there were four people in the store not wearing masks, and they were all Mennonites. Somebody saw a Mennonite lady go into Walmart. They won't let you in without a mask unless you claim to have a medical condition. As soon as she got in, she took her mask off. And it says here that with well-doing, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I think that applies. So let's be careful and leave a good testimony. Well, it says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And I thought about verse 22 in the first chapter. Let's do this. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Let's kneel for prayer. <clears throat>